There's a statue honoring James Meredith on the campus of the University of Mississippi. In 1962, Meredith faced insults, threats, torment, and violence as he became the first black student to attend Ole Miss. Unveiled in 2006, the memorial depicts a resolute Meredith as he walks toward a portal with the words courage, knowledge, perseverance, and opportunity emblazoned across the top. More monuments like this should exist. It's a stunning and sobering memorial capturing a true moment of heroism. But it's also just that, a moment. And as I read through Adam Harris's new book, The State Must Provide, Why America's Colleges Have Always Been Unequal and How to Set Them Right, I realized that I've never really learned much more about Meredith's story beyond that scene. Why did he want to go to the University of Mississippi? What did he study? How was he treated when the cameras went away? This monument may reveal Meredith's fortitude, but it also obscures the reality about educational opportunity in America. Even decades later, the University of Mississippi's campus remains much wider than the state that it serves which is true for all the schools in the SEC, and also all across the country for that matter. And the state of Mississippi has always underfunded its historically black colleges and universities. Black people also shoulder a disproportionate share of the American burden of student loan debt. Today on The Reckon Interview, we'll talk with Adam Harris, who also writes for The Atlantic and is a New America Fellow, about the history of American colleges before and after that moment memorialized in Oxford, Mississippi. We'll also talk about the birth of land-grant universities and HBCUs, and some landmark Supreme Court cases related to the history of education, as well as how to address current inequities and what the purpose of higher education should be in today's America. So let's go ahead and get started with this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Adam Harris, thanks for coming on The Reckon Interview. Thanks so much for having me. Your book starts with a rare snowy day in Alabama where you set foot on the Alabama A&M campus. And you had a long family legacy at the school, but you write that you know it wasn't necessarily your first choice coming out of high school. What's your family story at A&M and, and how did you wind up at Alabama A&M? As you mentioned, I, I had sort of a family legacy there. My sister was actually enrolled there and playing volleyball at the time. My mom had gone to Alabama A&M. My uncle was a drum major in the early 80s. And so, you know, I had always grown up around A&M. You know, the Magic City Classic was also a very big thing in our family. My dad went to Alabama State, so there was like a bit of um, <laughs> When I was in high school, though, my thought was that I was going to go to a high major D1 program and play basketball. It had always been the dream. And of course, dreams sometimes get derailed. I ended up at La Morse Junior College after an injury my senior year to show that show scouts that I could still play. And those coaches never really came calling. About six months into my time at La Morse, I wasn't, um, wasn't getting acclimated to the campus. I, it wasn't the right environment for me. And I had still been in conversation with the coaches at Alabama a &M. You know, they had been some of the first people to recruit me and they were still kind of on, on board. And so I made a call and, and went out that January. And ultimately, I decided after my time at La Morris that basketball actually wasn't the thing for me. So I actually ended up getting an academic scholarship at AM. It was interesting um, how much, you know, a place can be your home from afar and it can be the place that you're associating with as a home from afar. But until you're actually in it, it doesn't necessarily feel like it. And then once I got on campus, it was clear that AM was sort of a home base for me. You know, people in Huntsville will be quick to point out now that they're the quote unquote largest city in Alabama, but it's still a relatively small city that does serve three major universities there. Alabama A&M is an HBCU. There's another HBCU. And then, of course, there's the University of Alabama at Huntsville. And you talk about that you used to drive over to that campus sometimes to work from their library and recognizing the disparity between the campus at UAH and the campus at A&M. Um, how did the two campuses differ? 
you know, the first thing I noticed, uh, it was a couple of weeks into my time at AM, and I drove over to UAH um, because, as you mentioned, the library was open three hours longer than, than ours was. And that was the first thing that sort of struck me as odd because, you know, you're a student on campus, you need to study. Um, and sometimes you don't want to do that in your dorm. And so I go over and I notice, you know, some of the, the, early things, right? That the they had newer buildings. If there were potholes at all, you know, they'd been filled. They had sort of man-made ponds and, and all of this this different stuff that just looked incredibly updated and, and very new. And as I started poking around a little bit, I learned that, you know, UH, of course, is founded in 1950, but they have almost double the endowment of what Alabama A&M had, you know, a place that had been open since 1875. And so those initial sort of differences they, they struck me as odd, but then I also kind of looking around campus, uh, Huntsville's about 30% Black, and UAH's campus was about 10% Black. And so it, it just struck me as odd to think of this place as, you know, really a, a regional campus, a commuter campus, kind of aimed at serving the city that, that wasn't necessarily serving the entire student population of the city. And as I got into covering higher education, I had a lot of questions about whether my experience was just me sort of being melodramatic about what I was saying and, you know, thinking the grass was screen on the other side, or, or if what I noticed wasn't an anomaly, that, that HBCUs often had institutions right down the road that received greater resources, that were able to build an endowment in a shorter period of time. And, and what I learned in working at the Chronicle and my time at the Atlantic and then writing this book um, was that it's not an anomaly, but, but it's really rooted in how our higher education system is set up. And you chart that, you know, over the course of the book, uh, and one of the things that you point out is, is the rise of these land-grant institutions. From the beginning, we're almost entirely segregated. Uh, Alabama A&M is a land-grant institution in, in Alabama, and then Auburn, of course, is one as well. Uh, and Auburn was initially, uh, you know, segregated to be entirely white, and then still is, is very, very, very white compared to, to the student body. Can you describe what a land-grant school is, how they were set up? And, and why this disparity was kind of baked in from the beginning. Yeah, so a land-grant institution, um, back in 1862, uh, the federal government passed the, what's known as the Morrill Act, which gave states land, land that was you know, expropriated from Native Americans through lopsided treaties, violence, et cetera. They gave states land that they could sell in order to fund an institution. But the issue was, you know, with that original 1862 Act, was a lot of states did not create separate institutions for Black students. They did not fund separate institutions for Black students with that original money. And so these, these 1862 institutions were often only attended by white students. And when you think of that act, right, that was one of the largest investments that the federal government ever made in American higher education. You get Iowa State University, you get Michigan State uh, University gets greater funding, Penn State, Cornell is a land grant, um, Auburn is a land grant, as you mentioned, um, Oklahoma State University. So a lot of these major institutions, um, high research producing institutions, institutions with, you know, more than 20,000 students, 30,000 students, um, are built out of this land grant. So really kind of the foundation of the state university system that we recognize today. Fast forward about 30 years. Um, those institutions are going back to Congress saying, we need more money. You know, we're performing a vital service. We are the place that, you know, there were places to, to teach people the art of manslaying. There were people, places to teach people how to be lawyers, how to be doctors. But the, before we arrived on the scene, there weren't places to teach um, farmers, the arts and the sciences. There weren't places to teach literacy, basic literacy to people, um, pr predominantly white men. And that's the role that we were facilitating. 
Um, so they go back to Congress asking for more money. And there's a, a quirk that Congress ultimately ends up putting in the 1890 legislation that says, okay, we will give you more money, but you cannot discriminate against Black students with in the land grants, right? So it has to sort of be equal opportunity. And so oh, some states ultimately say, okay, we will enroll some Black students, select Black students. You know, Iowa, which was the first state to accept the land grant, enrolls its first Black student in 1890, and that's George Washington Carver. But other states say, okay, fantastic. We will use that to, um, we'll use part of our funding to, to fund these HBCUs. And so a lot of people sort of think of that 1890 Land Grant Act as like, this is what established and gave greater funding to HBCUs, when in reality, it was the predominantly white institutions needing more money and the, the Black institutions being sort of funded as an aside. And obviously before the war in the South, it was illegal in, in many parts of the South to to teach enslaved Black Americans how to read, how to write, uh, even reading things like the Bible. What types of educational opportunities were there for Black Americans in the North? You, you write about the case of this very unique school in Kentucky that was actually a, a co-ed and integrated university that was established in the South before the war started. Yeah, so before the Marilla Act, Really, there were there were limited educational opportunities kind of writ large in America, uh, which was one of the reasons why you have something like the Murill Act. But as you as you mentioned, um, as I as I write in the book, right, there were explicit laws that barred black people from being taught and to to read after Nat Turner's rebellion. They banned, banned teaching black people, you know, to read the Bible. It was it it became to the point where there the thought was if you have a literate population of, of black people, there will be an uprising. And and so in the North, you see um, a sort of piecemeal effort at education taking place, both at the K-12 and higher ed level, where you have places like the Institute for, for Colored Youth in Pennsylvania, and you have, you know, Oberlin, which enrolls a certain amount of Black students, but you, you don't have, like, large influxes of Black students into, into educational facilities. But as you also mentioned, there is an institution in the South, Berea College, which is founded by this Presbyterian minister who is like, wait a minute, what are we doing here? Like, if we are Christians, if we believe in, you know, the book of Acts, where it says God is made of one blood, all the people of the earth, then we should be treating everyone as our brothers and sisters, right? His parents owned enslaved people, but he, you know, he had gone north, he went to Lane Theological Seminary in Ohio and, and learned, um, and was taught that, you know, he was sort of convicted by that experience. And, and so, he creates this institution, Berea College, that is integrated, that is co-educational. He founds it before the Civil War. He's literally run out of town by enslavers and comes back after the Civil War. It's like, that's not enough. He was, you know, he was shot at in his home. Um, his friends were literally tarred and feathered. But he comes back after the Civil War because he has that commitment to interracial co-educational education. And one of the reasons why I wanted to follow Berea is because you know, the broader sweep of higher education does not have that, you know, foundational plank that Berea had, right? This, this idea of educational quality, this idea of equity in education that were central to John Fee's philosophy, that, that were the reason why that institution by, you know, the late 1800s was a 50-50 institution, right? With roughly half Black students, half white students, and it was successful, right? It's a place that produced Carter G. Woodson, and that that original mission was only torn apart 
because of intentional state action, um, because the legislature passed a law aimed at the institution to segregate schooling in, in the state of Kentucky. And that was part of this, I mean, the larger Jim Crow movement, obviously, but your book focuses on higher education, but after the Civil War, during Reconstruction, you do have that brief period where the Freedmen's Bureau are, are trying to set up public education opportunities at the K-12 level for white and black Southerners alike and, and all over the country as well. And like you said, it, it, the state comes in and forces these institutions to segregate. Why did the state of Kentucky pass the day laws and, and how does that fit into to the larger Jim Crow movement in the South? After that 1890 Murill Act, right, there were there were several laws that had sort of started to introduce this idea of separate but equal. So there was like the separate car act down in Louisiana um, that was ultimately the, what was challenged in Plessy v. Ferguson. There was, you know, the Murill Act where they say you can create a separate, you know, equal institution for for black students. And then you get this decision in Plessy v. Ferguson that that kind of codifies this lie of separate but equal. And so after, after that, you have states, um, Oklahoma, Alabama, Kentucky, other states passing laws, Alabama passed section 256 in 1901, right? This is after my granddad's dad was born. This is not that long ago. They, they passed section um, 256 in 1901. Kentucky, um, the, the story that, that they tell in the local area about how this law came to be was that this lawmaker was passing through Berea on the train at the depot. He sees a black woman and a white woman hugging and says, this is the road to, you know, miscegenation. This is the road to interracial marriage. This is the, the road to um, sort of the eradication of, of the white race. And he, he effectively goes and writes legislation to ban integrated education in Kentucky. And so it was really interesting. And it's always interesting to think about how recent the, the actual laws that were enshrining segregation, even if it was customary before, right, where in a state like Mississippi, the faculty at, at Ole Miss is like in, in the 1860s, 1870s, we would rather close and we would rather, you know, have this institution shuttered and all resign than enroll a Black student. That was actually codified in that early 1900s period gives us, just kind of shows the proximity to, to and how recent this, this history really is. And one of the ideas that you drill down on, and, and there are several court cases that, that challenge this idea, is separate but equal was never actually equal. The historically black institutions were not receiving the same level of funding. They didn't have the same types of programs. They were done kind of pro forma in order to have the opportunities there. And you start outlining this series of cases to, to challenge that. And one of the first ones that struck me was the case of Lloyd Lionel Gaines. Who was Gaines and, and what was he trying to accomplish? So Lloyd Gaines, he was born in, in Mississippi, moved up to Missouri um, when he was when he was young, and he attended Lincoln University of Missouri, which is a historically black college, and he wanted to be a lawyer. He was like, I want to practice law in St. Louis. I want to practice law in Missouri. And the best way for me to do that is to attend a law school in Missouri. The problem was there was no law school set up for Black students in Missouri. And Missouri had been practicing this sort of scheme that a lot of Southern states had where they would effectively send students out of state, Black students who wanted to get a graduate education, they would send them out of state to, to get that education rather than educating them there in Missouri. And the NAACP ultimately ends up taking up Lloyd Gaines's case. And it works its way all the way to the Supreme Court to where the Supreme Court finally says, okay, 
if you were going to embrace this idea of separate but equal, like if you want to, we will let you have the lie of separate but equal, but you at least need to have a separate option. Um, you know, when you don't even have a separate option, how are you going to say that you have separate but equal in, in your state? And as I got into Lloyd Gaines's story, you know, it's really interesting that there's like an intimate human connection there. Because you, you see in him how the people and the names that are attached to these fights, what they're going through as they um, are going through that, right? He, this was several years of his life that he was fighting in a battle that his name was in the press that, you know, he's risking, actually risking his life in order to get an education. And, and I often think of it in regards to, you know, in regards to now, he didn't want much different than what students want today. Like, I want to go to law school. I would like to go to law school in my state and there's not an option for me. And, you know, I, the last thing is I, I think about this letter that Lloyd Gaines wrote to his mom before ultimately, you know, the, the, the sort of end of Lloyd Gaines' story is that he disappears. Um, he's never heard from again. And, and one of the last letters that he writes to his mom, he, he talks about how he's just a man. You know, not a man who has you know, dedicated his life to this cause, but, but just a man. The, the sort of humility in that statement, he ends it with an exclamation point, I'm, I'm, I'm a man. That idea of these are people, these were people's lives. Um, I really wanted that to come through in the book to say that, yes, this was a cause and a fight that they were fighting for, but they were also, you know, these are people's lives. And I think that people, I, I would hope people can sort of connect to those people. You do a great job of, of outlining his story and also James Meredith's story at when he desegregates University of Mississippi. And like you said, Gaines goes missing and we don't know what happened to him, but given the times, it seems equally possible that he could have just gone off somewhere and, and chosen to live in anonymity, or what may be more likely is that is that he was killed for his efforts to to attend law school. And you know reading those sections, I, I was kind of struck by, we sometimes remember these people as moments in history, like in Alabama, we remember the moment of Vivian Malone and James Hood, uh, and not the fact that, you know, they were tormented for that following year and ended up having to, to drop out of the University of Alabama and, and kind of the human cost that you were talking about of people, you know, making these strides. So Gaines disappears and the NAACP starts looking for other cases to kind of pursue and take to the Supreme Court. Another case you talk about is Ada Lois Sepwell versus the Oklahoma Board of Education. And what was her story? So Ada Lois also wanted to be a lawyer. She had been in, a, she's you know, from a, a town in Oklahoma, in Chickasha, Oklahoma. And when she was younger, there was a, a lynching in Chickasha. And, and, you know, this was a man who did not receive due process of law. And, and so in the back of her mind, she had this idea that if she could get into the justice system, if she could become a lawyer, maybe she could help affect change. She'd seen the ways, uh, you know, Thurgood Marshall came and spoke at her at her school when she was younger. And so she had this idea of, of becoming a lawyer and, and helping to affect change. And um, so, so ultimately, as the NAACP is looking for new people um, to to take up this mantle, and they, you know, there's this sort of idea that they can't um, manufacture these cases; they have to sort of arise. 
organically. And so Ada Lewis, she, she graduates from uh, Langston University, the, the HBCU in Oklahoma, which is still there and which, you know, even today educates almost as many Black students as the University of Oklahoma and Oklahoma State University combined. And she, she goes to this school, she graduates, she, she has a fantastic time with her professors, but as we were talking about a little bit earlier, the institution was, you know, underfunded, the buildings were old, it, you know, the green spaces wouldn't drain right, just all of these sort of little things. And so she ultimately applies to law school at Oklahoma. And she goes through this series of trials where you, you really get to see how you know, piece by piece, little by little, the state was pushing back on, on this equality, right? This is 10 years after the Supreme Court says, hey, states, you at least need to have a separate option for Black students, and they don't even have a separate law school for uh, Ada Lois in Oklahoma. And so when the Supreme Court once again says, okay, at least create a separate option for her, if you don't, if you don't have a separate option, you know, you need to enroll you need to enroll her at the University of Oklahoma. And so when they get that order, the state sets up a law school in five days. They hire three faculty members, uh, pay them part-time for what will be full-time work, set up a curriculum, basically rent out a a floor of the Capitol building so that, that they can have a law school for Black students in the state. She ultimately doesn't attend, but, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to use Oklahoma is because it really shows, even after this, there are several levels to which Oklahoma kind of goes above and beyond to maintain its system of segregation. So after Ada Lois, before she's even enrolled at the University of Oklahoma, it takes another challenge to help her get in. Ultimately ends up being George McLaurin, who after he is, um, the Supreme Court says, you need to admit him into into the School of Education for, for graduate school. Um, they put him out in the hallway when they say, you know, you can't you can't have him, you know, in in an anteroom and segregating him from students. They put a little literal bar in the classroom, and so you know the granular details of states' commitment to to maintaining segregation, um, you know, were actually it's like intellectually I knew how far and how committed states were to it, but when you see those granular details, they were you know actually incredibly shocking. Yeah, that, that story of him having to sit in the hallway for, quote unquote, attending classes was, yeah, it, it was eye opening. So you have that period there where, you know, schools are fighting tooth and nail to avoid desegregation, whether it's, you know, on the K through 12 level of, of the Little Rock Nine or the story that you describe of James Meredith at the University of Mississippi. And there's that really heated period you know, the early days of the John F. Kennedy administration, I think, is when we're first kind of introduced to this idea of affirmative action. Uh, and that's a term that, you know, has been used by a bunch of different people in a bunch of different ways where the meaning has kind of gotten lost over the intervening decades. But what was kind of in its purest form, this idea of affirmative action then? And, and in your opinion, what has it kind of become today? So originally, the idea of affirmative action as introduced by John F. Kennedy um, into the federal lexicon in 1961 was to sort of help eliminate the barriers to actually hiring in in the federal workforce, those sort of historical barriers. So it was was sort of, in a lot of ways, kind of like a remedy for that historical discrimination that, that Black and Brown people had faced. And as it moved into higher education, as, as you know, you have the passage of the Higher Education Act of 1965, you have the, the passage of the Civil Rights Act, and, and, um, and, and so 
colleges start looking at their student body saying, well, there's the chance that we could have federal funds withheld if we don't increase our, our you know, um, minority population. And so you see a, a series of schools start to implement affirmative action programs, race conscious admissions programs, to, to start to address that historical discrimination that these groups have faced. But the interesting thing about affirmative action, the way we've thought about it for the last 40, 50 years, is that affirmative action was effectively blunted as a remedy for historical discrimination in 1978. So 17 years after it enters the federal lexicon, it is challenged, um, and it's the Baki case, uh, Baki versus the University of California Board of Regents. And in that case, in that decision, you know, Justice Lewis Powell is like, you know, uh, Alan Baki, a white student who was trying to enroll at the University of California Davis's medical school, he said, you know, it's not his responsibility um, for, for this sort of legacy of, of discrimination. So, so he shouldn't be discriminated against as a, um, a way to, to um, help other students get into these institutions. But, you know, it's, it's the, the, the sort of the flaw in thinking there is that it's a penalty for this individual student rather than something that is helping the system remedy. So it's the higher education system that had an issue, um, which is why the University of California allotted originally eight of 50 seats for black or brown students, and then uh, 16 out of 100 seats. So there were still 84 other seats that he was applying for that he was ultimately not able to get into. That decision has really it's had an important impact on both the conversation around affirmative action right now, um, because it's like people are still thinking about affirmative action in the pre-1978 context, when in reality, you know, if you look at the AAU institution, so American Association of Universities, it's about 66 of the most highly selective institutions in the country. Roughly about 5% of the student bodies across all of those institutions are Black. And so it's not like it opened the floodgates and, and Black students were just getting into institutions everywhere and it's just high percentages of Black students everywhere because they have, um, because race is used in admissions, it really obscures the, the perception. Um, that decision kind of really kind of obscures the perception and, and the reality of, of affirmative action at this moment. Coming up after the break, more from Adam Harris about America's educational divide and his thoughts on the purpose of higher education today. Hey folks, if you're interested in learning more about HBCUs and the history of black educational opportunity in America, you may wanna sign up for my colleague Star Dunnigan's weekly newsletter, Black Joy. Each Friday morning, Star will fill up your inbox with stories of black Southern excellence, power, and joy. Sign up for it at reconsouth.com newsletters. Well, and during that case where, where Baki had, and in some ways it seemed like that case might have been manufactured by the UC system and Baki together, they were kind of tacitly encouraging him to, to challenge this case. But uh, I'm going to paraphrase it, phrase it, but Thurgood Marshall says something about, you know, it's, it's a matter of perspective. Are you keeping people out or are you ensuring that some people get in? And I thought that was a really interesting way of of framing it, as you just kind of outlined. And then in the decades since that decision, Black college students have kind of been hit from two different fronts, because you've had, you know, the efforts in California and Michigan and places like that to eliminate affirmative action, which, as you've written about in The Atlantic recently, there may be a case that would kind of eliminate it across the board upcoming soon. But then you've also had states kind of use the quote-unquote 
integration of universities and as an excuse to cut funding to HBCUs, because if everybody has access to these historically white institutions, then, then why should we continue to fund these historically black institutions? Um, and, and so it's just kind of gotten worse and worse and worse over time, where you talked about in the book that, you know, there are now fewer students at Auburn University that are black than there were in, in 2002. So in these last 50 years, how has the state of Black education evolved in, in the United States? Enrollments of students at Black colleges kind of from their peak have declined. Black students no, or Black colleges no longer have a monopoly on, on where Black students attend. Um, so, so now, you know, it's roughly about 9 or 10% of Black students in the U.S. go to um, historically Black colleges and universities. Um, but I think the thing that we are seeing at this moment is a sort of stratification happening where the institutions with the most resources enroll the fewest black students and the institutions with the fewest resources enroll the most black students. So if you look at a state like North Carolina, where, you know, more than 75% of black students who attend college in North Carolina do so at one of the five black colleges or the state's community colleges. Um, and mind it, there are 12, um, it's either 11 or 12 uh, predominantly white institutions in the state of North Carolina. And so that is a large chunk of students. And, and if you just did the black colleges and the PWIs, it's 25% of the um, black students in the state go to the black colleges, 22% go to the PWIs. So, so across 12 institutions, there are fewer black students than there are at these five um, public HBCUs. And, you know, I, I think at this current moment, that stratification is where you see a lot of that um, discrimination sort of rearing its head, those vestiges of discrimination rearing their head. It doesn't just apply to those Southern states. If you look at California, the same kind of stratification is happening at, for between UC Berkeley and the community colleges, even going down the list of you know Berkeley and UCLA and UC Irvine and et cetera. Kind of if you go down the list, you see where more Black students are enrolled in the Cal States, more Black students are enrolled in the California community colleges. And so I think that we are in a place now where unless there is a significant injection of resources into those institutions that are receiving fewer dollars, um, that don't have that sort of historical momentum, right? The, the institutions that have been allowed to build that historical momentum, you know, Ole Miss, um, Alabama, Auburn, Tennessee, North Carolina, um, you know, University of Georgia, often didn't enroll a lot of Black students and, and still don't enroll a lot of Black students. And so it's almost a situation where we need to if, if we have the idea of equity in mind, um, we should be thinking about, okay, which are the schools that are enrolling a lot of minoritized students? Which are the schools that are enrolling a lot of low-income students? Um, I think the other thing that people often miss about HBCUs is more than 60% of students who attend Black colleges are Pell eligible. So they're eligible for federal grants for low-income students. These institutions are serving a, a student body that has often been underserved, low-income students, Black students, by the by the majority of higher education. And until those institutions are funded, I think you're going to continue to see that that inequity rearing its head. You know, I think it may be useful for our listeners for me to kind of admit some of my own ignorance and historical biases on, on this topic. You know, we both grew up around the same time. And I was not aware of how big of a deal the Magic City Classic 
was until I was an adult. I mean, obviously I knew the Iron Bowl. I knew Alabama versus Auburn. I did not know A&M versus State. Uh, and, and I grew up in the Birmingham suburbs. Um, I, you know, I think for, particularly for white people of my generation, it's easy to kind of think, okay, well, what was the point of what Vivian Malone and James Hood did, you know, if we're gonna to continue to have predominantly white institutions and, and HBCUs. Uh, and so, you know, it, it becomes easy to think, well, maybe we shouldn't fund those because maybe we should focus on creating uh, more opportunities for, for black people at predominantly white institutions. And, you know, I mean, I do think that there's an interesting question there because obviously we've had some closures of historically women's colleges or, or they've become co-ed colleges and things like that. It's not the same situation, but I think it's easy to fall into that line of thinking if, if we don't kind of get educated by the role that HBCUs play. If we are trying to create equality in the system now, should we dedicate resources to creating more opportunities for Black students at PWIs or equal funding for HBCUs or do it all, do both? <laughs> I think it's a it's a both situation, right? I, and you know, as you you pointed out, you know, HBCUs, even though they're about three percent of the nonprofit four year institutions in the country, they they educate twenty five percent of Black STEM graduates, fifty percent of Black lawyers and doctors, eighty percent of Black judges. So there's still like the the very important and pertinent role that they're playing in educating the Black middle class. But there's also I I often look at an institution like North Carolina A&T and what it's been able to do in spite of being historically discriminated against, right? This is the third largest research producing institution in the state, like public institution in the state. So, you know, that's just behind UNC and North Carolina State University. And it's been able to do all of that in spite of receiving fewer dollars when it made the transition over to become an R1 institution um, or a high research, Carnegie classified high research producing institution. You know, it didn't receive any additional dollars to do that. When two other PWIs did it, you know, in and this is in the 2000s when two other PWIs did it, they received $10 million a piece. And so this is like, there's still this kind of current discrimination that is happening for these institutions and yet they persist. And yet they are able to, if you just kind of looking at, at AM, the current alumni, Mandela Barnes, the Lieutenant Governor of Wisconsin is an AM graduate. And so just looking at what the institutions are still producing kind of shows their, their continuing importance. But also, right, if, in this broader conversation about closures in this, I often think about where HBCUs, where it was identified that HBCUs were owed funding and where states just kind of continued to let them languish and the fact that they are still around. So I think going back to the early 1900s in Kentucky, when they bring down um, William T.B. Williams, you know, kind of famed professor in the Black College sphere, taught at um, Hampton University in, in Virginia, had taught at Tuskegee in Alabama. And they bring him in to say, what would it take to raise our institution up, to raise our public school for, or public HBCU to the standards of Tuskegee? And, you know, he gives them the rundown. He's like, look, if you, the, the girl's dorm is fire prone, it lacks fire escapes. The, the men's dorm's in a mud puddle. The electrical plant doesn't have power. The buildings are old. The professors are underpaid. The students are fantastic. But it's going to take a lot to, to raise the physical plant back up to where it needs to be and to address a lot of these issues. And the state's like, well, we have $40,000. You can fix it with that, right? And, and ultimately, they don't even end up spending all of that. And so 
and this is in the early 1900s that they're identifying this issue. And, you know, even things like as simple as the drainage and simple as the buildings being old, these are issues that are persistent. I've often referred to it as like, if the HBCUs were given a toothbrush in the early 1900s, the late 1800s, to do some of that preventative maintenance, to do, uh, you know, to, to upgrade buildings as they, as they needed to be upgraded, it would have been a lot less expensive, but but that carrying on that toothbrush analogy, it turns into a cavity if you're not able to brush your teeth. It's like, okay, well, I guess I can go and get it filled, but then they're not given the money for the filling. And so it turns into, okay, now I need a root canal. And it's going to be instead of $3.50 for a toothbrush, a two-pack of toothbrushes, you have to spend, you know, $1,000 or $1,500 for a root canal. And so it's like all of that is spiraled. And so, yes, it's going to be expensive to address the sort of legacy of discrimination at these institutions. But you have to think about the fact that these institutions are still filling an important role in American higher education. And they've done that without the funding. So what would they be able to do if they were giving the funding that they have been blocked from receiving for so long? And then at the predominantly white institutions, you know, it does seem like oftentimes, whether it was, um, integrating schools in Birmingham and, and things like that, that, that the sort of white establishment solution is, oh, well, we'll just close the black options. <laughs> but then, you know, you get to a school like Alabama or Auburn, where even in 2021, the opportunities for white and black students are not equal. And we are starting to see some of these major institutions like Alabama, uh, or, or you discuss in the book, Georgetown, you know, start to make cosmetic changes, I guess, or, or very superficial changes, uh, whether it's taking I mean, bare minimum things like taking the names off of, sl of slave owners off of buildings or acknowledging, you know, that, that the history of the institution was was built by selling slaves and things like that. You make a pretty compelling argument that, that that's not going far enough. What more should these institutions be doing. And, you know, it's, it's not to say that it's nothing for, for the institutions to, to rename buildings, in part because, I mean, it's like naming and that like history and remembering is, is incredibly important. But, you know, for, for an institution like Ole Miss, a place that the professors were, you know, in the 1860s, I, I, I think of this a lot um, in concert. So in the 1860s, early 1870s, the professors at Ole Miss were saying, hey, parents, don't worry, we're not going to enroll Black students. If we did that, we would all resign. At the same time, you have Alcorn State being founded, so an institution for Black students. Um, and it, they're given a guaranteed appropriation. They're told they're going to have a guaranteed appropriation of $50,000 a year, and starting in 1871. But by 1875, as the so-called redeemers sweep back into office with the quote-unquote white revolution, they reduced that appropriation to $15,000 a year. A year later, they reduced that appropriation again to $5,500 a year. And this is, this is mirroring when they, the University of Mississippi is saying, we would close rather than enroll a Black student. Um, and so does that institution have a responsibility to help the institution that was being shafted out of funding at the same time as it was being lavished with funding and explicitly saying it would rather close and enroll a Black student. And, and so I, I do think that, that those institutions that profited from slavery, as, as Georgetown did, selling 272 people to literally keep their institution afloat, um, that, that were actively profiting from you know, state investment when while barring Black students during Jim Crow, those institutions may have some responsibility to help the institutions that were serving the population that they would not. Um, but at a, at a sort of more 
macro level, even beyond the institutions themselves, you know, the state and the federal government had a very explicit role in creating, maintaining, and defending the inequitable system that we recognize today. So, you know, I know that states have to run a, a balanced budget, but they should be factoring in that history into the way that they think about fu their funding for higher education now. As Amos Hall said in, in Oklahoma in, in the 1940s, yes, it is going to be expensive, but the creation of the inequitable higher education system that we recognize is not are doing. It's the state's doing. It's the federal government's doing. And it's it, the onus is on those entities to fix it. Two movements that are happening right now that sort of seem to fit with the theme of this book. You've obviously got a movement on the right to, you know, fight against the idea of quote unquote critical race theory, which would suggest, well, there is no inequity in the history of higher education. And so we shouldn't do anything about it. Uh, and then you have this movement on the left, or, or at least some segments of the left that, that recognize this disparity and also recognize kind of the historic importance of, of HBCUs, whether it's Vice President Kamala Harris being a graduate from an HBCU, so many mayors in, in cities across the South, in, including Birmingham's uh, newly reelected mayor, Rana Woodfin is an HBCU grad, and things like that. And so recognizing the importance of that and, and trying to make some efforts to level set funding, whether it be private donations. You tweeted recently about the largest donation to Alabama A&M by a private donor, which was made anonymously, which I think was $2 million. But then things like Stephen Curry, you know, making a major donation to, to Howard University to fund a golf team and things like that. So we are seeing some major private donations, primarily to kind of well-known institutions like Howard and Morehouse and places like that, but not as much at, at kind of the lower level. But you know the, the Biden administration did make an unprecedented investment in, in HBCUs, and there is some talk about student loan debt cancellation, which would uh, disproportionately impact Black Americans. You know, is is there sign of progress? Is is are we taking steps towards that being uh, enough? Yeah, I, I think that. To take like that first part, right, the philanthropy piece of it, 2020 was a record year of, of philanthropic giving for HBCUs. Several HBCUs recorded their largest ever single donations. The, the thing that, as you mentioned, a lot of, it, it, that wasn't really evenly felt across all HBCUs, right? There are hundreds some odd HBCUs, and that was only felt by a certain subset section of those HBCUs of those institutions. The McKenzie Scott donations went to 22 or 23 of the 100 HBCUs. And AM, you know, it's still a $2.2 million gift is, is nothing to, to scoff at. That's a that's a large donation and impressive donation. But it's also kind of thinking about in the scope of the institution's history, it's the largest donation in 146 years. Um and, and so um, you know, I, I I often think about like what would what would have happened if that if AM was receiving similar donations in previous years? Even you know one of one such donation every ten years would have have been you know transformational for the institution. Michael Bloomberg gave over a billion dollars in one fell swoop to um, to Johns Hopkins. Uh, like what would that have looked like if it was spread across the sector? So I, I think that even though 2020 was was a record year, I am 
hesitant to say that that sort of philanthropy is going to be the cell for for historical discrimination. But what what may help, as you mentioned, is you know the Biden administration is literally tripling the funding for HBCUs this year. They get about fifteen across about fifteen programs. HBCUs each year get about a billion dollars from the federal government. This year they'll get about three billion thanks to some of the COVID relief packages, um, and that's already been incredibly helpful for the institution. Um, a way to to make that. Um, like start to move towards that being a remedy for that historical discrimination is to make it recurring, um, to sort of make that additional funding, recurring um, funding that the institutions will receive. So it's not just a one-time injection. You know, in, in addition to that, the current sort of student debt crisis, you know, where we go from here, I think it's important as we're thinking about higher education policy towards the future, you think one about, you know, ameliorating some of the, the issues of the past. So the fact that, you know, black students take on more student debt, they're more likely to, to um, they're one more likely to take on loans, more likely to take on more loans and more likely to default on those loans, thanks to, you know, the way the general, uh, generational wealth works, et cetera. Um, and so they, there needs to be a push to eliminate that. But there, on the other side of the coin, you have to think about, okay, how do we prevent those students from going back into debt? Um, and one way, of course, to do that is through debt-free college, tuition-free college. Um, I know the Biden administration is pushing their two-year free college plan that would affect community colleges. And as I mentioned, you know, more than 50% of the Black students who attend college in North Carolina do so at one of the community colleges. And so that, there is actually a really big kind of racial justice piece to, to that as well. But, you know, on the campaign trail, a lot of, you know, a lot of the, the Democrats who are running for office factored in HBCUs into their free college plans, kind of acknowledging that historical discrimination that these institutions face and the potential pitfalls of crafting a free college plan that private HBCUs, for example, were shut out of. So, you know, if you create a four-year public free college plan and Tuskegee is in a public institution and Dillard and Tougaloo, et cetera, aren't public institutions, what happens to those schools? So um, as we're, you know, moving forward and as those policy conversations develop, you know, it's, it is really important that, you know, the lawmakers are keeping that sort of racial equity lens, both in, for, you know, institution's sake, but also for the student's sake at the forefront of their minds. To close, I mean, you've covered higher education for, I think, most of your journalism career in some form or fashion. You know, you've got two kids of your own projecting, you know, to the around the age when they will be making their college decisions. Most of these institutions you wrote about, you know, started with kind of the goal of, you know, we're going to train farmers and we're going to train kind of the average citizen. What is the purpose of higher education now and what will it be when, when our kids are grown up? You know, historically, you know, before 1965, higher education was thought of as a public good, right? The founders, when they were thinking of higher education, they were thinking of it as a place to, to teach people the arts and the sciences, but also how to be a good citizen. So they had like this idea of a national character wrapped up in this idea of higher education. I think that we're actually at an inflection point where people are searching for a way to craft that national character, a place, a, a way to to teach citizens how to think deeply um, and higher education could be that space. I, I think what would be necessary to make that a reality is one that the institutions living up to the higher ideals which they kind of hold claim to but also when they're going you know when um, my kids are going off to school I was I was talking to my parents and also my wife about this um, you know 
I would love it if they went to an Alabama a and or, you know, my dad went to Alabama State, my sister went to Hampton. I would love it if they went to one of those institutions. But I, I would hope that when they would enroll there, that America had a better understanding of higher education as not just a place where people, you know, you get your credential and that's what helps you go off and get a job. But really in that sort of original sort of intellectual ideas, a place where, where students are able to explore. Like the more that higher education is tied to, it's just another stepping stone to a job, uh, the more people will think of it as that's, all, it's only a private good and the more expensive it gets because the public's not willing to pay for something that is is only for, for the private good. But I think, you know, and just the skills that, that students learn in colleges, it's, I, I think the more we understand it as something that benefits the entire public, the better off we'll be. Well, Adam, thank you so much for your time. And uh, everybody can find The State Must Provide wherever you get your books. Thanks. Thank you. And that's our show, folks. Thank you to Adam Harris for spending some time with us this week. You can pick up his book, The State Must Provide, at your favorite local bookstore. If you've got thoughts about HBCUs, student loans, the SEC, anything college-related, share them with me by emailing me at jhammontree at reckonsouth.com or finding me on Twitter at at John Hammontree. Or sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Conversation, at reckonsouth.com slash newsletters. If you're interested in more great episodes about Southern history, check out Season 2 of The Reckon Interview, where we examine the history of voting rights, healthcare access, criminal justice, and much more. Healthcare access, criminal justice, and much more. The Reckon Interview is executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. Our original theme music was written and recorded by Alexander Ritchie. And our series is edited by Kanika Codrington and the fantastic folks at Edit Audio. If this is your first time listening to us, please go ahead and hit subscribe. And if you've been listening to us for a while, share it with your friends or leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with me.